All right, so we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to read that text for us in just a moment. You can find it on page 1003 if you want to grab any of the Bibles tucked into the pew there in front of you. Uh, but what we're going to be talking about this morning is our problem of sin. Like as we come to this section of Hebrews, it's going to be talking about sort of the high priest and the role of the high priest. And the role of the high priest, one of the major roles, is to perform the sacrifices and sort of intercede for atonement of sin. I was reading an article. This article was written back in 2011. I think it's still pertinent now, you know, 11 years later. The, the author writes this. He's a professor at a Christian college. He says, to many, sin has fallen into grace, which I'd never heard that phrase before. So I was like, what do you mean? What does he mean by that? Well, he says, what, what does that mean? Well, when we talk about God's grace, we are assuming the reality of sin, that we're sinners and that God has forgiven us. But in our language today, sin is not only an assumption, it's an accepted assumption. And not only is it an accepted assumption, it also doesn't seem to matter. He says, it's as if we're saying, yes, of course we sin, and then we do nothing about it. He goes on and says, a generation's lack of zeal for holiness has produced a trend, acceptance of our sin, ignorance of its impact, and weakened relationships with God, people, and the world. When we don't see the gravity of sin, we won't be reliant upon God for the grace of sanctification and transformation, and holiness won't be our aim in life. So if we're not willing to be honest about sin, then we need to assume that that's going to have negative ramifications for the way we engage our lives, our relationships, and most importantly, our relationship with the Lord. And so a question I have for us is like, do you feel like we really talk about sin? Like, do you feel like we really talk about it? Or do we do what this author is saying? Do we kind of let it fall into grace? Meaning we never talk about sin outside of being like, man, sin's a big deal, but grace is even bigger, which is true, which is definitely true. It'd be bad news if it wasn't. But do we kind of slough off any honest conversation about sin? And if we do, like, what's at stake for us? I mean, I think here in 2022, we actually, there's a lot of conversations about sin that are going on, but it's actually like cultural sins, not biblical sins. Like, we are real quick to call each other out for cultural sins and to spend a lot of time sitting with cultural sins, but we're not super comfortable or interested in sitting with biblical sins. And so, we're going to do that this morning, and it's probably not going to be super pleasant because I've spent all week studying it, and it wasn't super pleasant. So, my experience and your experience may be very similar at this point. But I'm going to read our text for us, and then we're going to jump into it. We're going to talk about our sin problem. So, if you'll follow along with me, I'm going to be reading the first 10 verses of chapter 5. So, the author of Hebrews writes, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was, Aaron being that first high priest back in Exodus. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Father, thanks so much for this word for us to study together this morning. We thank you for these handful of verses here in the middle of this letter that we're spending this spring unpacking together. We pray you'll help us to wrestle with what this author, under inspiration of you, Holy Spirit, shared with that church so many generations ago and is sharing with us this morning to better understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us, and to be honest about our need for him. We pray you'll do uh, a mighty work in each of our hearts to help us to actually engage this word and be shaped by it. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So I just want to say a couple things at the outset. Like, we're going to talk a lot about Jesus' priesthood for weeks and weeks to come. And this is not the text that really goes deep into all the nuances of Jesus' priesthood. I know I've said that like three times now, but that's just true. We're going to get there. Chapter 7, especially, is going to talk a lot about Melchizedek. You may be like, oh, yeah, let's talk about Melchizedek. We're not going to talk about that today because we're going to camp out with a conversation about Melchizedek in a couple of chapters. What I want us to focus on this morning is how the author highlights our need for a high priest. From the beginning, as God is organizing his people, and telling them how to approach him, how to be near him, how he can be close to them in their camp and then in their city. It's through the mediation of these high priests and these sacrifices. So I want us to be focused on that. And we're going to look at four things really quickly this morning. All right? Sin's a problem. That's the first thing we're going to talk about. We need to own it. Sin is a problem. The second thing is it's a problem that we can't deal with ourselves. The third thing I want us to see is Jesus was actually appointed for the very purpose of dealing with our problem of sin. And lastly, Jesus took care of all of it. He fully dealt with that problem, our problem. So that's where we're going this morning, and we're going to go at a pretty good pace. So hang on. Let's look at verse 1, chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So I want us to see here in verse 1, the author is saying, hey, remember the whole point of there being a high priest is because there's a sacrificial system to help deal with our sin problem. Like the whole reason there was a sacrificial system in the first place is because we're sinners and our sin has a profound effect on our relationship with God and with other people. We're told in Isaiah 59 verse 2, your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Our sin separates us from God. It has since the beginning. I actually want to read for you from a a great kid's book, uh, one that I highly recommend. It's called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. This is the way this author, um, who I can't remember their name, of uh, Carl Lafferton, this is the way he phrases it. So we pick up the story, uh, and Adam and Eve have just uh, decided they don't want to follow the Lord in the garden. It says the people, Adam and Eve, did a terrible thing. They decided they didn't want to do what God said. They decided they wanted a world without God in charge. God calls this sin. Sin spoils things. So sin has no place in God's wonderful garden. God said to the people, you can't live with me in my garden anymore. And he sent them outside. To show the people they had to stay outside, God put some warrior angels in front of the garden. The angels were like a big keep out sign. Now things were sometimes bad and people were sometimes sad, but people still kept sinning because they didn't want God to be in charge. So no one could come into God's wonderful place. God said, because of your sin, you can't come in. God wanted people to remember it's wonderful to live with him, but because of your sin, you can't come in. 
That's just the beginning of the book. The book has a very redemptive close to it. I'm not going to read the whole book to you, but that's a, you should go buy it. It's really great. But what that author, Carl Lafferton, is drawing our attention to in that book is that from the garden, from the very beginning, there was separation with God. Sin separated humanity from God. Individuals are separated, not just humanity at large. You know, in the garden, it was one man and one woman, and their intimate relationship with God was separated because of their sin. That's true of every single man, woman, and child. Our relationship with God is separated. We're separated from him because of our sin. And that's why in Leviticus 16, we have all these laws about the Day of Atonement. There's a goat, if you go back and read Leviticus 16, uh, Aaron and the high priest, they have to take a goat. They take two goats. One goat is sacrificed to atone for the sins of the people. It has, has to have its blood shed to atone for their sins. And then the other goat, which is the scapegoat, the high priest lays his hands on them and confesses the sin of the people, and then they drive that goat out into the wilderness so that the, the sins are taken far away from God. So the people's sins are paid for, and the relational distance that they deserve is driven away so they can be close to God. From the beginning, there's a system that God put in place for us to know, hey, your sin is a big deal, and I'm going to make a way for it to be dealt with. All the way back to the beginning. So do you and I actually feel like our sin is a really big deal, like we see pictured in a sacrificial system? Do we actually believe that something, someone has to die for our sin? Or does that seem extreme? Does that seem over the top to us? Like, do we look at, if we look at our broken relationships, if we look at the pain and suffering that we've caused, when, we've, when we actually unpack the deep shame that we feel, when we realize how self-interested and, and how much self-worship we have, that that we just keep cultivating in ourselves and we see all the damage that it does. Are we being honest about it? Like sin is a real problem. Every one of you has relationships that are affected by your sin and the sin of other people. And we know the fracture that it causes. We know the pain that it causes. And that is a picture of the pain that is caused between our relationship with God. All relationships, top down, are affected by sin. And so do we actually believe that our sin is a real issue, an issue that required someone to die? And what's at stake if we don't? Well, what's at stake if we don't is we're not going to look for someone to rescue us out of that if we don't think we need rescuing. We've got to be honest about our sin. But we also have to move quickly because I spent a long time talking about that. So second, not only is sin a problem, but let's look at verses 2 through 4 because sin's a problem that we can't deal with ourselves, not even if you're the high priest. Because we're told that the high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. And because of this, this high priest is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And we'll stop there for the moment. If you go back to Leviticus 16 and you read that, not only is the high priest supposed to take a goat and sacrifice that goat for the sins of the people and then drive another goat out of the camp so that the people's sins can be carried far away into the wilderness. Before he does that, the high priest Aaron and his family have to sacrifice a bull to atone for their own sins because they can't mediate for the people unless their own sins are atoned for. Which is just a picture for us that there is no, there is no human being born of the line of Adam that can actually intercede for us fully because... We're all broken. We're all sinners. None of us can actually deal with our own sin. Now, the positive of this is like we're being told here that this high priest, because that high priest is a sinner, 
he, could, he understands and can engage us and say, yeah, I understand. Like, it is hard, and it is shameful, and you feel broken. I feel the same way. So there is like a positive side, like the people had someone who could identify with them, but that's the beauty of what we saw earlier in Hebrews is that Jesus has sympathy for us, but he didn't sin. He's like, I experienced the full weight of temptation, and instead of making Jesus feel superior to you and me, he actually leveraged that to feel sympathy for us, to love us, but still be able to plead the merits of his own blood for us. We'll get to there, that in a minute. Now, the negative side is like the, the high priest, if he can't deal with his own sin, there's no way that a human high priest can deal with our sin. And what I want you to take away from that is no one can deal with their own sin. If the high priest can't deal with his own sin, neither can anyone else. And so you and I can't deal with our own sin. You know, there's a grace in the establishment of this sacrificial system. We have broken sinners who need to be made right with God, but it was an insufficient system because it wasn't meant to be sufficient. Sacrificing goats and bulls didn't actually pay for sins. It was a placeholder to show that blood had to be shed by a perfect sacrifice. It was a placeholder for Jesus on the cross. So for you and me, we, cannot, we can't keep trying to deal with our problem of sin on our own. Like It doesn't matter how hard you strive. It doesn't matter how good you are at bargaining with God. It doesn't matter how good you are at reframing your sin, to call it something else. Trying harder trying to convince God to, to deal with you differently or trying to interpret your situation in a new way, none of those are actually going to help you deal with your problem. Sin is fracturing all of our relationships because it's fractured our relationship with our God. So we've got to stop trying to manage our own sin problem. And every one of us is trying to manage our own sin problem. So I just encourage you, like, what is your management style? Like, how do you try and deal with your own sin? Are you a striver? I'm just going to try harder. I can, I can write the ship. I can write my relationships. I can, I can throw off this addiction. I can do it myself. I just got to try harder. I'll get this out of my life. Are you a bargainer? I'm a bargainer. I'm like, God, I promise not to do it again. Just let me off this time. I'm like, God, I'm, like, I'm, I'm probably going to do it again. But thanks for, being, thanks for being gracious. Let's just agree that it's not going to be as big a deal as you want me to feel like it is. Or if you're showing up for me in this way, God, I promise to do this for you. Or maybe you're not a bargainer. Maybe you're a reframer, and I'm actually that as well. Actually, I'm all of these. I don't, actually, I'm not much of a striver. I don't try that hard. But the other things I do, like when it comes to reframing, because bargaining doesn't work, so I get left having to try to reframe, decide, well, actually, God doesn't care that much about this sin. Because I don't care that much about this sin. I don't actually want it to be really dealt with. I don't want it to be dragged, dragged out to the light, so I'm just going to believe that God doesn't either. Like those management styles of sin don't work. It just deepens the chains. Just, or it strengthens the chains, you could say. It deepens the estrangement. We cannot deal with our sin issue, with our sin problem. But Jesus was appointed to deal with it. That's what we're told in verses 5 and 6, that Jesus was appointed by God you are my son, today I have begotten you. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, a forever priest. God was, Jesus was appointed for the very purpose to represent us. Like that's what the high priest did. He represented the people to God. He interceded for the people <clears throat> between their relationship and God. That was the whole point that a high priest was raised up from among God's people. But these high priests before Jesus were sinners. And they couldn't actually be the intermediary and the sacrifice that the people needed. So Jesus was appointed to be that for us. 
I mean, that was the purpose of Jesus coming to earth in the first place as a baby, was so he could live a life that made him a perfect sacrifice. He's both our high priest and our sacrifice. He's both of them. He lived a perfect life so he could be a perfect sacrifice. He's a sinless mediator. He's a sinless high priest so that when he pleads the merits of his own blood, he doesn't have to plead those merits for his own sin. He's a perfect interceder for us. And Jesus was appointed not just to help you and me out, but to represent us, because the high priest represented the people. He represents us. From my, my son's birthday a few years ago, we did one of those escape rooms, uh, which I was really bad at. Fortunately, like I'm one of the, if you ever want to do an escape room with me, just know that I don't start pulling my weight until about halfway through. Once I see you start figuring things out, it helps me figure things out. Uh, but when you're in one of these escape rooms, you can sort of like, you can call for help three times. But after three times, they're not going to help you anymore. So if you need a clue, you need some help, you get three chances. I think sometimes we, we treat God like that. We treat Jesus like that. Like, Jesus, all right, I'm, I'm stuck in this escape room, and I need to get out. And I'm afraid I can only ask you for three helps. But I'll figure it out myself. Let me do as much as I can. And when I run out of ideas, I'll get you to plug one idea in for me, and that'll help me get to the next stage. That's not what it's like. Jesus didn't come to earth so he could give us clues on how to figure out our own problem. Like if we're going to use the escape room, it's, like, it's essentially like we turn around and realize that Jesus has been in the escape room the whole time. He's like, I know how to get out, so just follow me. And he does all the clues for you. Like, that's what's happening. Jesus came to represent us, not to help us. It is helpful for us, but not in the sense that we think. He's not helping us figure our own stuff out. He's actually dealing with it for us. He's paying for it for us. And so for you and me, let's remember there's a solution to our sin problem, and that solution is only ever Jesus. Stop looking to yourself to, to manage it. Stop trying to deal with it yourself because that never works. Even when it feels like it's working, that's, that's, that's a false positive. It's all going to fall apart. I was reading this book recently, and, and the author was talking about the speaker who was helping people understand, like, hey, when you're in the midst of sin, the last thing you want to do is cry out and run to Jesus. But the, actually the first thing you should do. Like, Jesus is not surprised when you and I are in the midst of sin. So that's the moment to cry out for him, which seems counterintuitive. A lot of times we cry out to Jesus after we've kind of come off of whatever the sin was and we feel like we've cleaned ourselves up enough, kind of like the parable of the lost son who says he's going to clean himself up and come back and ask the father to let him be a servant in his house. Like, we try to do that same thing. But this author was saying, actually, you know, the best thing you and I can do is acknowledge that there's no way we're going to deal with the very sin we're in the midst of. Cry out to him then. Super counterintuitive, very humbling, but very helpful. Because the only hope that you and I have with our sin problem is Jesus. And it doesn't matter if it takes us eight years to figure it out or eight seconds. Like, we need Jesus. So I would encourage you, like, when you're in the midst of sinful patterns, don't try to sort them out and then talk to Jesus about it. Cry out to Jesus right then. And I got to wrap up quickly this last idea that Jesus fully dealt with our sin problem. It's in verses 7 through 10. Verse 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. He was heard because of his reverence. Like the author is referencing that time that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he was going to give his life for us, the anguish that he felt. It's in Matthew and also in Luke where it says this, 
Jesus said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. He says this to some of his disciples. And going a little farther, he fell on his face. Jesus fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. We're told in Luke, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Like Jesus was in anguish because sin is a big deal. Like the payment for sin is a big deal. It drove Jesus into the depths of sorrow because he knew what he was going to have to do. I was listening to a Tim Keller sermon talking about um, the wrath of God, and he talks about how in the ancient world, like the, one of the primary ways that you would execute someone is you would make them drink a cup of poison that they knew was poison. Like that's how you would execute your enemies. Like if they were sentenced to death, they would come, you would hand them a cup that they knew would kill them, and they had to drink it down. And Jesus is using that same imagery here. He's like, if there's no other way than me to drink the death that my people deserve, if there's any other way, Let's do that. But if there's no other way, then I'll drink it. That's what Jesus did for us. Like he drank the cup of wrath all the way down so that you and I will never be handed that cup of wrath and have to drink it ourselves. We're told that he learned obedience through suffering. He suffered for us. It wasn't that Jesus wasn't obedient before, but we weren't. He lived out our obedience for us. And he had to suffer to do it. And he was perfected for our salvation. He was the perfect sacrifice so that we could experience eternal salvation. And he's a, a priest of the order of Melchizedek. The only thing I'm going to say about that is it's a forever priesthood. It's not, a, it's not a temporal priesthood. It's a forever priesthood. He will forever be our priest. Because he alone is the source of our salvation. That means that for you and me, if you want salvation, there's only one place to find it. It's with Jesus. Someone's going to have to drink the cup. You and I each have our own cup of wrath. And either Jesus drank it for us or we drink it for ourselves. Because sin is a huge problem. But I want you to, under, to know this. I want you to hear the heart of God in the gospel in this text. The fact that there is a high priest who drank it for us is, the, is, is an illustration of the fact that God loves us. God put a system in place from the beginning so that there would be a way for you and me to not drink the wrath that we deserve, but for a substitute to take it from us. That's his heart for us. Like, he loves us. So whatever the sin is that you struggle with and you feel shame over, whatever the sin is that you've hidden and stuffed and ignored, whatever the sin is that you've returned to again and again and again and you don't know how to break it, Jesus suffered for that. He paid for it. He drank the cup that it was due so that now you can be free. And know that that cup is never coming for you. I want us to understand that the one who put this sacrificial system in place did it knowing from the beginning he would send his son to be that perfect sacrifice for us. God's heart for you and me is our salvation. He wants us restored to him. He wants us redeemed. He wants us free. And the fact that there was a a fallen high priest that could never mediate for the people that pointed to the true high priest is a picture of the fact that God from the beginning had a plan to take the cup that you were due 
in the cup of wrath that I was due, the sentencing of death that we were due, and he had his son drink it for us because he loves us. We're told in Hebrews that Jesus did this for the joy set before him. The sacrificial system points to the fact that God looks at you and me and says, you matter so much to me that I counted a joy to suffer for you so you won't have to suffer for yourself. Lord Jesus, thanks so much for some time to spend this morning reflecting on these things together. And if we're being honest, which we don't really like to, like to be, we don't want our sin to be a big deal. I know I don't. We want our sin to be something that's an issue, but not a major issue. We want our sin to be something that we can either sweep under the rug or that we can somehow figure out for ourselves and we can unpack it, we can look at it, we can come up with a game plan and we can deal with it. Or we can convince other people to see it differently. Like we want some type of game plan. And yet there's only one hope for us when it comes to this problem. And that's for us to look to the one who gave his life for us. Help us to be honest about our sin and then help us to be joyfully passionate about your grace. We don't want our sin to fall into grace where we don't ever look at it and never think of it, but we don't want to wallow in it either. So we pray you'll help us to be honest about it and then to celebrate the gospel all the more. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Will you stand with me? We'll sing.